Dominic. Happy birthday, man. Oh, thanks very much. Didn't we have my birthday? No, happy Blarney Pilgrim's birthday. Oh my God, it's Blarney Pilgrim's birthday. <laughs> yes, that's it. No, that was awesome. That I knew there was something genuine. in the back of yeah, my head. Something, something in the back of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 52 weeks ago, I suppose, we uh, launched at the Celtic Festival in Port Arlington. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Una McElhinden for that amazing opportunity, by the yeah. way. That was uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a shock when we were asked to, to do that. And I think it was a, the, the catapult we needed for that. So. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if you've ever actually was, stopped and thanked Una for that. I but, did uh, actually feel like uh, like we were being strapped into a catapult when she asked us like two weeks before. She said, "Why don't you just launch at the festival?" And I was like, "Oh, I'm getting strapped into a catapult, and somebody's pulling it back, and I'm going to be propelled into this project." So, um, yeah. yeah, it was brilliant. So, thank you to Una for that. Remember, yeah. I had to give you a hug that morning. You did have to give me a hug. Yeah. It hasn't happened since. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I, actually, um, bit of a shame due to the circumstances that. Uh, there's no festival this year, but there's great plans of food. Yeah, I, I think believe. there's some stuff happening with an online format, and I don't know to what extent, but there's something happening. So is that this week or next week? This weekend coming. If you're listening to this on the day it comes out, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, a golden, a golden time. That that little two day experience. Lots of intensive recording and anxiety and hand-wringing and uh, then this amazing music just wondering about the festival it was lovely well I've um I've actually been revisiting that time quite a lot so in the background um we have been converting all our past interviews into a video format and getting them up onto YouTube um for many reasons but one of the reasons is because I was very aware that the um anyone that's hearing impaired at the minute there's no option to listen to Blarney Poems is there a way of transcribing it like I'm not going to be able to sit there and and transcribe an hour and a half with Kevin Burke two hours interview it's just not a reality and then I thought well YouTube has its algorithm that would do all that stuff so I punched in a few a few episodes and uh the day before last I had a, a quick look back to see where the the algorithm has got to so if you look for the Blarney Pilgrims podcast on YouTube and then you turn on closed captions prepare for some solid lols so uh it's funny i'm definitely the mumbler of myself and dom i think i'm the one that people would struggle to understand most for some reason google seems to pick me up okay uh-huh. dom <laughs> calls me what have i been saying you call me darling well i do i do <laughs> so it's, and this is darling and darling so it, it struggles with the accent i was uh the one that really got me going was jerry mckay so I listened. I, I was reading the intro and listening to the episode, and some of us and Dom have a chat, and there's a few monologues in there, and Dom referring to me as darling and not Darren mostly. But then it gets into Jerry, and Jerry sings um, "Fisherman's Day" is the the opening tune. That is, I nearly fell off the couch because at one stage it says that Jerry is singing "No More Will I Sell Foam on eBay," <laughs> and it's just full of little trinkets of 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 goals like that ah brilliant yeah brilliant so that's a whole other level of blarney pilgrims pleasure to be had in well the future. it's great but i'm kind of going it's it's defeating the purpose of having something there for um anyone that has is hearing impaired okay. so it hasn't ticked that box but on the other hand it gave me a little chuckle when i needed one right so right. there's that yeah yeah um so today's guest is a fellow called Ken Fleming. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Ken, um, he's based in Dallas in Texas in the US. And he is 
I wouldn't say he's single-handedly responsible, but he's his energy and his drive and his commitment, as you'll hear in this interview, are incredible. And his dedication to establishing an Irish music community in the part of Texas where he lives is uh, is just incredible. And um, yeah, that'll yeah. come that'll come across from this chat. And just have it like I couldn't believe when I first heard about Ken and and the festival or the retreat, and then when I looked at the lineup of who was coming just this year. Mm. I nearly fell off my chair. So, like that straight away lets me let me know just how full on and, and real these guys are. They are the real deal. So the O'Flaherty Retreat is a series of workshops over over a weekend in Texas, and it it, it sounds incredible. Partly, Darren, because you're saying the lineup is amazing, the the musicians are incredible. But but it's also um, it, one thing that I particularly love about this conversation is the point that we get to towards the end. And the reason I'm saying this is because since I've moved to Australia, right, there's plenty of Australian people who look at America and think it's just completely crazy. And, and I have found myself in social situations and I find myself defending America. And I've always felt that from my own experience of living in America, that it's it's so much worse. Living there, you realize the place is so much worse than you ever thought it was. And it's also so much more amazing than you thought it was. And when I say amazing, I mean open and beautiful and full of humanity in all of its completely crazy multifariousness, right? Now, I'm saying that because the conversation we have with Ken really gets to the gets to the heart of that and, and his journey of um, discovering Irish music and then dedicating himself to it and dedicating himself to opening the tradition to other people. And so it's a beautiful thing. And so I, I just I feel so, so strongly about that, you know. I, so. I think it, for me too, it sums up the retreat itself and Ken's... Um, summarizing of how this is a social music more so than many many other musics in the world where you can sit down face to face with the greats on not a daily basis but it all it, it happens so often and the retreats are an example of that that this is what this music does it, it allows the likes of you and i to to sit down with the greats we're in a lot of other musics that just it's not even on the radar of something that might happen. It, there's a there's a shield around around the stars where I don't know with Irish music it seems like it's just it's a it's it, it's music for people by the people. Mm. That might sound corny, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah, yeah. So that's today's guest, Ken Fleming, and not only that, he's a great musician. So yeah, yeah. brilliant. Before we get in, I'm gonna do our. Uh, it's 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 time to send some birthday love to Darren and Dom for <laughs> one year of uh, of work. Uh, of course, what I'm going to mention is Patreon. So thank you so much to our patrons that uh, continuing to go over over the last few weeks. Um, we're still surprised that people are, are trickling over there and and putting their hand in their pockets, um, particularly during this time. Um, as I've said before, and I'm going to keep on saying, our mission was always to have this as a free. Um, podcast so we want this to be in front of as many ears as we can get it and we always knew it would be a tiny 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 percentage of our listeners that would be paying for everyone else so thank you so much to those people the model is working having said that if you're one of those people who's been listening for the last year and you haven't managed to um, contribute or to become a patreon you can do that now there's never been a better time go to patreon.com forward slash blarney pilgrims and for two dollars an episode, which really, I mean, what do you get for two bucks? Not even a cup of coffee these days. You can really contribute to helping keep this going because um, 
uh, when I mentioned about where we get to in this conversation with Ken Fleming about um, about the beauty of the music and what the music means in terms of human connection, I, 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 this is our birthday, so I'm just going to say it. That's what this podcast is about too. It's about that, and it's about connection that we've been able to have myself and Darren with all of you as listeners and with the musicians. So, so please, yeah, if you can help support it, keep it going. Patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims. And look, if you can't, we all, I do want to stress this. If you can't, that's fine. We we honestly do want people to just be able to listen. Like that is the the, the main goal. Um, if you can't as well, like there are many many things you can do to help. Like, for example, you're probably tired of me banging on about algorithms, but I I searched the Ireland, um, the Irish iTunes and the American iTunes the other day for um, Blarney Pilgrims because in Australia when you look for like Irish music or traditional Irish music on iTunes we come up we bubble straight to the top and I'm presumed for the last year that that was the case in America and in Ireland and in England too and it we're just not there so we went and I think part of that is we don't really have a lot of um, reviews or, or subscribers in that region so if you're from that region please please like give us a give us a review or hit it uh, hit that subscribe button on, on whatever podcast app you're on whatever it's Apple or Google or wherever ones you're on but uh, yeah because that that just kind of helps us sift to the top so look it's not all about cash not, not all of us have the the money but that's yeah I kind of just trail off into nothing there why don't yeah. we get into someone who actually knows what they're doing alright <laughs> right, well, with that here is Ken Fleming enjoy <laughs> Ken Fleming, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, so, Ken, what did we just hear? Uh, it was a tune uh, called The Boys of Kuminor. Uh It's a, a tune I initially heard from uh, Martin O'Connor and Shamio Dowd in Capital Hayden. Uh, I guess it was off their, I think it was a Crossroads uh, CD. Right, yeah. But I actually learned, I learned this version from uh, my daughter, uh, Katie. 
uh, she was at um, at our O'Flaherty retreat and uh, was taking some classes, some beginner classes from uh, Pete Sprickler, and he taught that particular version. So she brought it back, and I figured I'd learn her version. Ah, very nice. So, Ken, did, did you grow up with Irish music? No, I didn't. Actually, I, I came to it late in life. I mean, I was a rocker uh, back in my teens and um, just continued to play rock. What were you playing? Who, who were you listening to? Oh, it was all the 60s stuff. I mean, we, we, I, I kind of grew up in the 60s. And so, you know, we had, I played with several bands that did a lot of cover work. So everything from the Doors to, you know, the Beatles to you name it, we played it. Um, and I did that for a number of years. And then I started going back in time. I started getting in more into folk music and then getting into old timey. And then uh, I started doing a lot of finger picking style stuff, you know, in terms of you know, Doc Watson, but also got into, uh, ragtime and then it went back a further step uh, started going into bluegrass and then started going back further and landed in irish music uh, <laughs> 40 some years ago what's next <laughs> I, I you know i've been doing this 40 years i don't think of it there's a next yeah. unless i'm getting up there so, so ken <laughs> what, what was the uh if you can i don't know if you're able to tease this out but um what was it that gave you the the impetus to start moving backwards through time right if you're able to put your finger on that. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, um, I think the music wasn't really ex- ex- kind of expressing who I was. I mean, it was just, I, I kept trying to find something, uh, that it really resonated with me. And I, and by the way, I loved all those forms of yeah. music. Don't get me wrong. And I enjoyed playing it. And, um, but I, I just kept going back. I think, um, just trying to find something one that I could enjoy myself. Um, but also I can join with others and, uh, you know, in a rock band, you know, you, you play lead or you play rhythm, you, you know, you're a part of a team, but at the same time, you, you can't play by yourself a lot and enjoy it. You have to be with people. So, um, just continue to go back. It's like I said, when I was playing ragtime, it was pretty much a solo gig, uh, that I did and I enjoyed that a lot, but it wasn't, I, I missed the being with others too. So, uh, Irish music. And the ragtime was the ragtime yes. guitar. Yeah, it was all finger finger style yeah. playing. Yeah, yeah. finger picking. Yeah, yeah. And did the did the bluegrass element of it because like bluegrass have a, has a pretty healthy jam or session culture, kind of like Irish culture. Did that? It does. Did that scratch the itch for a, enough for a while? Because obviously, if that was the social side that was dragging you in, did that not keep you for long enough? It, yeah, yeah, it, exactly. Going from uh, you know the ragtime and folk style. And because I got into Doc Watson, I got more into the bluegrass feel of things. And uh, so I ended up getting a five-string banjo and, you know, figuring I'd be a, a five-string banjo player the rest of my life. And then about a year after I'd started doing that, um, that's when I got the bug for Irish music. I went to Winfield Folk Festival, um, I guess it was 1980. And that's when Dedanon was, was there. And it just blew me away. Uh, the music and uh, Charlie Pickett was up there playing a tenor banjo. And uh, so when I came back home, I went out and bought a tenor banjo and, and I never looked back. I mean, it's, it's always been Irish music after that. So when you say you came back home, where is, where, where was home or where is home? Uh, home is uh, I'm outside of Dallas, Texas in a, in a city called Richardson, Texas. Uh, so that's, uh, so I've been in Dallas for, I think I arrived here in Dallas in 79, 1979. Um, and again, I've been 
playing bluegrass for about a year. I mean, I've been playing dabbing, dabbling at it before, but in a serious way, I was playing it for about a year when I went to Winfield, which is one of the big festivals for bluegrass. In fact, all the championship bluegrass players, I mean, they go there to compete and also all the great bluegrass bands have performed there, but they occasionally bring in a, a an outlier band of some sort and they happen to bring to Dan and, and they took that place by storm. I mean, people just were blown away. And uh, and just give you a real quick story. I, I first my first meeting with him is I'm in the camping area and I'm walking towards the the gate, and I'm seeing this 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 uh, dust storm over to my left, and I'm just going. I wonder if it's a tornado because you know tornadoes are around these these places, right? <laughs> So I get in the gate and I head over that way. And what was causing the dust storm was people dancing. <laughs> and it was, it was to Dan and playing. And they just, everybody was just up on their feet playing in these, you know, these, uh, these sand or uh, dirt packed areas and just causing all kinds of dust storm and everything else. It was fun. So I have this, I have this image in my head of like the, the bluegrass festival organizers thinking, Whoa. We shouldn't, exactly. have invited, we shouldn't have invited the area. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We've just lost That's half right. our attendees. Yeah. Well, after that, they started having Irish bands uh, regularly at the festival because they realized, hey, there's a connection between the bluegrass old-timey and, and Irish that uh, they appreciated. And just, just um, can you paint a picture for me of what Winfield Folk Festival was like, right? So just, just so I've got a kind of general idea, because, you know, festivals now are very different than festivals were then. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, festival. It's, it's really devoted to acoustic instruments, number one. Uh, number two, there's a great leaning towards uh, bluegrass and, uh, and to some degree old-timey, but mostly bluegrass. Uh, they have these competitions uh, for, you know, the best uh, uh, banjo, best uh, mandolin, best fiddle, best guitar. And they do these contests. I even competed once in the, in the finger pick, picking contest. And it was, uh, you know, you had, I think it was 52 guitarists that were, were there for that. Uh, so it's a massive, massive uh, competition. Uh, but then they bring in the top uh, bluegrass bands, um, and then some other kinds of bands, you know, the folk, uh, air, you know, style singers and things of that kind, but uh, heavily bluegrass and lots of folks. But they have a camping area and it's, most people go there to camp and they have their own communities. For example, there's a, an Irish community or Irish session community um, and they go there every year and they go to that one area and they go into that same tent area and they play and uh, but they have pockets of that all throughout the, the campgrounds. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful event. I mean, if you get a chance, uh, it's worth going. Um, and as I said, they usually have some kind of Irish band playing, uh, one of the top, top bands, you know, that are playing. So what do you do as a, as a, as a man who's now found Irish music and you're going back down to Dallas, was there much of a, an Irish scene or, any Irish music that you were aware of in Dallas at the time? Uh, not really. I mean, there there were some um, a few pubs, um, and they had your your kind of your standard pub bands, um, you know, doing the Clancy Brother kinds of music and stuff. There wasn't much traditional music to speak of. At least we thought. I mean, when I came back from uh, Winfield and started playing tenor banjo, the next step for me was to go out and try to find other players. Um, 
and there was a string band in town called the Dallas New Dallas String Band. New Dallas String Band, um, and what they had four players that were playing Irish as part of that band. Uh, so I approached him and you know tried to pull some of their members to to even get an ensemble together because um, uh, I was used to ensembles. That was something I had done all my life and wanted to do it again. I was so jazzed by this music. Um, so I reached out to them and and uh, they said they would only come if all four of them came. So we all got together. We formed a band called Tinker's Dam. Um, it had some notoriety back in the 80s because there was not many Irish bands in the area at that time. Uh, and this was the you know, the start of River Dance and, you know, a lot of attention to Irish music back then. Uh, so we got lots of gigs, lots of gigs. Um, and in the process, we we ended up playing on a children's TV show. And early in the morning, I'm surprised that this happened, but there was a, a couple over in Fort Worth that were listening to that. They had some young kids, and I guess they were watching the show, and we played on it. And by the way, we couldn't call ourselves Tinker's Dam because of the word dam, even though dam was D-A-M. They said Tinker's Band because uh, it was a kid's show, right? Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. And so anyway, they, they heard us and they reached out to us because they played Irish music over in Fort Worth. And then it, we started networking and we just started figuring out who in the area was playing. And um, and that was pretty amazing because then we started finding other players and, and we developed this kind of early on community of musicians, uh, which has really fed the fuel for or has fueled four decades of, you know, a lot of attention towards Irish music in this area. It sounds like you um, you took to the tenor banjo fairly quickly then. Was that a natural process? Uh, well, it's a plectrum instrument. I've been playing guitar for uh, almost, I guess, you know, almost 60 years. So, you know, I, I was already familiar with a pick and that something. Um, and what's great about tenor banjo, I also dabbled in, in mandolin, and the tuning, as you know, is the same. Um, and that's the great thing about that instrument, because now I'm able to play other instruments, whether it's uh, bazooki or guitar or mandolin or tenor banjo. I mean, it's a plectrum instrument. And if you can figure out where the notes are, um, you can make it happen. So it, it did come to me fairly easily, mainly because of my background with guitar, not so much the five string banjo, because you don't play it the same. Yeah, makes sense. I think what I was going to ask off the back of that was really because I have this idea in my mind. If you're picking up an instrument and there's not, you don't have other people around, and resources are a lot harder to get. What do I mean by resources? I'm like at the minute, you any YouTube um, examples you can find. There wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't any back then. Yeah. In fact, it was it was funny when I bought the tenor banjo. Nobody told me that it was tuned an octave below uh, a fiddle. I was playing it in American style. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting the same sounds as Charlie Pickett. And then and it, it took me a long while to figure that out. When I did, I was going, oh, gosh, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? And um, yeah, back then there was, uh, it, particularly in Dallas, there wasn't any, it wasn't like Boston or Chicago or Philadelphia or New York City, where you have these great Irish players that uh, are mentoring young people. And, and uh, it wasn't existing in, in Dallas. We were, we had to pioneer on our own. Uh, which, by the way, and I confess this, I, I have developed a lot of bad habits because I didn't have somebody to, to teach me. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I met Mick Maloney, and he finally tried tried, tried his best to correct my playing. Um, but in some ways, it was too late. I mean, I had I already developed my own style, and it was a little bit different than most people. But uh, 
Yeah, that was the sad part. In, in Tinker's band, what was, what was the kind of repertoire you had then? Uh, it was all traditional. I mean, we played a lot of Planksty and, and uh, um, just some of the great players that were playing at the time, uh, the Boffy Band, um, you know, and then when things like um, uh, Stockton's Wing, I mean, we were just playing some of it. It was almost like we were covering these various bands, but we actually uh, started developing our own sets and learning tunes from different sources and you know, the Greenfields of America and places like that that we, we pulled in tunes. Uh, yeah, mostly by tape recordings. I mean, back then it was cassette tapes uh, and LPs, um, and they were hard to find in our area. I, I had the good fortune of um, being a, a DJ for a local radio station, uh, Celtic Crossroads was the name of the show. And I got all these free LPs from all these various vendors, you know, or these uh, recording houses. And yeah. so I, I got some really good good LPs uh, <laughs> that really, really helped help the music around here. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet it. I'll bet it did. Yeah. I, um, I had the same experience. I worked for a commercial radio station for a while and uh, um, I used to get all kinds of things, but never any Irish stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I only got I only got Irish. I actually got Irish and Scottish because I, you know, I, I was um, involved in, in trying to promote Celtic music in general. So we we uh, I got a mixture of both. But ultimately, I love I love Irish music the best. <laughs> so so before before we have another tune, do do you have a a definition in your head of what Celtic music is? Well, I mean, you can get real clinical about it and say, well, it's uh, music from the is it seven nations of the Celts. I mean, right. So that's that's one way. But I don't play, I think mostly I play Irish and Scottish. I've, I've done that. I haven't involved myself in Breton music very much or you know, Welsh music or Isle of Man or Cornwall or something. I mean, I, um, I think Irish and Scottish are very in some ways similar, in some ways not. Um, but they all have that pulse and that drive and the energy that I really, really enjoy in Irish music. So I, I think I just kind of listen to those two primarily, and I consider that Celtic music uh, in my my book. But I know it can be a much broader definition. Yeah. What, do you fancy giving us a, uh, another tune? Yeah. Let me let me play something on my banjo. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> See if we can make this all work together now. So I'm going to pull this aside, the vocal mic.
Uh, Ken, thanks so much for that. What what did we just hear? Uh, it's called the Knock the Gow jig. Um, I think some people are probably familiar with this, a two-part jig. Um, and I learned uh, this as a four-part from a, a great young fiddle player by the name Maggie Graham, who, like many other Irishmen, she got it from somebody in Charlottesville and she got it from somewhere else and it just kind of passed on. But it's an unusual version of it that um, I was not familiar with until I heard her play it. Yeah, it's nice. I have a feeling we're going to get into some territory which is going to talk about how Dallas changed from an Irish music perspective in the years to come. But before we before we do that, can you... I've never been to Dallas and I really, I've actually never been to Texas or anywhere south, I don't think. Florida doesn't really count as south, right? <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> uh, they, they probably think it, yeah. <laughs> but... What what was Dallas like then? Uh, back in the early '80s, when things got kind of started. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said, there were a few pubs. Uh, there was one in particular called the NFL Bar. Most people think that's related to the football uh, league, but it's not. It was uh, Nick Farley's Lounge. Uh-huh. And Nick Farley, there was a football connection. He was the butler of Clint Murkison, who used to own the Dallas Cowboys. Wow. So here's this uh, butler who, on on his spare time, owned a pub and it was a it was a pretty dark and uh i wouldn't want to call it a dump but just let's just say it was uh not the cleanest place you'd want to be in but um it was a remarkable place in a sense that's where any of the irish that came into town would go and and uh for those of us like irish music that's where you would go he would have music uh on friday and saturday nights the, the bands and then he would have music throughout the week but um it was a uh, kind of a spot where the Irish community, what there was in Dallas, uh, there wasn't many, uh, you, it's, it's not like I said, a Boston or a New York where you have actually an Irish community per se. So when you were, when, um, when you were seeking at places like this, what, what was the rest of Dallas into at this time? What was, what, what were you competing against? Well, I mean, you know, obviously country Western is big here in Texas and in Dallas, it was no different. Although Dallas is a little bit more is a different kind of Texas town compared to some other ones. Fort Worth, for example, is the stereotypical, you know, country Western uh, kind of place. Dallas is, uh, you get a lot of people from outside of Texas that come to Dallas. It's, it's a whole different feel. Um, I mean, jazz is big, rock is big. Um, I mean, there's a whole indie rock and stuff. I mean, there was a, a lot of music in Dallas. Um, there wasn't much traditional music. There wasn't much folk music. There was one place called Poor David's Pub that catered to, you know, singer songwriters and folk. Um, and they actually, you know, after we kind of started ball rolling with uh, Irish music and Celtic music in general, uh, we were able to convince him to bring in some of these groups that we like so much. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of, it was a wasteland when it came to traditional music, um, but that's changed obviously over the time. So what was your um, what was your next step? So you you've got the the NFL bar. What what was your? Yeah. So what we decided to do was remember I told you we, we kind of networked once we started realizing gosh there's other people that play and then we we through that network we realized there was other uh, cities uh, there were other bands in other cities. Uh, so we decided that we would get together and just have a a big day of Irish music. Um, and we decided to just invite all these bands from different places in Houston and San Antonio and, and Austin and invite them to Dallas uh, for a day long you know, music affair. Uh, 
and we called it the first Texas Kaylee. Um, Kaylee, we really didn't know what a Kaylee was. But we, you know, Kaylee's primarily a dance, but there wasn't any dancing. This was just all music. I guess there's some people dancing in the audience, but it wasn't it wasn't that way. So in 1983, we decided to um, do this, um, and we thought it would be just locals that show, and not many of them because you know, we didn't expect it to be successful. And we were quite surprised when it was very, very successful. In fact, there were you know, 100 or so people waiting in, out, outside trying to get in. And, you know, we, my wife and a friend uh, cooked up about two or 300 baked potatoes and they were gone in the first couple hours. And, you know, it was it was a big surprise to us. There'd be that much interest in the music. Um, so remember I told you that that couple who had uh, reached out to us when they saw us on the kids show, uh, Peggy Turner and Jim Brunke. And um, so th that couple and my wife and I, Peggy and I eventually married uh, Peggy, Peggy Davis at the time, now Peggy Fleming. But uh, the four of us decided, well, gosh, that was so successful. Let's keep doing it. And then we formed an organization to create the North Texas Irish Festival. So Southwest Celtic Music Association, we formed right after this first Texas Cayley. And then we changed the name to the North Texas Irish Festival, which is uh, I guess now in its 37th or, or so year uh, and it's a big a big event I mean ours was a very small but we grew it um, and I directed it for the first six years um, and and now it's uh, it's a pretty large festival in, in the country and when you're when you're doing this you you're talking about directing a festival what were you doing for work as well like earning a living well, I wasn't earning much of a living because I was spending most of my time <laughs> directing a festival. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I tell you what, it doesn't pay when you're a volunteer. Um, no, I was fortunate to have a job. This is, this is always fun to say. I mean, I was, it was completely away from the career path that I had chosen when I was in Colorado before I came down to Texas. I was selling copiers. I mean, really, I was selling copiers. And the only reason I was selling copiers was so I could spend most of my time working on a festival. I mean, that really, it, it just, it took so much time and there was uh, such a few number of people that were doing it uh, that could do it because of the time. Uh, I just devoted all my time as much as possible uh, to, to working on the festival. Yeah. Handy enough for getting your flyers done though, eh? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I was, I was, I was embarrassed about some of the paychecks I got because I just didn't sell very well. And I wasn't very good at it, to be honest with you. So I eventually woke up from that and moved on to other things. But it, it was a tremendous amount of time and, and it, it consumes me even some of the things I'm doing today. I, I own my own business, so that, that helps um, that I can spend time. But uh, back then, I just it was all so new. You're pioneering everything, really. You're pioneering not only the creation of it, but you're pioneering the promoting of it. You're pioneering getting sponsors and vendors and booths and all the other stuff. You're all you're having to do it. And by the way, I shouldn't say I pioneered it. I, I went to a Milwaukee Irish Festival and my band Tinker's Dam played it a few times. And I looked at what they were doing and we, we took a lot of what they were doing right and brought it down to Texas. As a young festival owner, and when I say young, I mean like you, you, your first few years. What what were the the bigger challenges? Uh, getting people to take us seriously. I, I mean, you know, when you're trying to bring in these big acts. I mean, interestingly enough, back in the eighty early eighties. I mean, 
uh, Irish bands from Ireland, um, they were just kind of getting their way, finding their way to, to America. And it was surprising it I could get some of these bands for so cheaply. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it now. I hope none of them are listening. I mean, it was uh, it was amazing. Uh, they were playing, getting paid about the same thing that my band was getting paid at a pub. You know, it was uh, surprising. Um, so we were able to bring in some really great bands. So convincing them that, hey, this is an Irish festival in Texas. I mean, people just could not compute the idea that there'd be an Irish festival in Texas. They would always think of Boston and Chicago and you know, all the big centers of Irish music. Uh, so to have something in Texas, it took some convincing. And the same thing for the sponsors, you know, just say, hey, look, this is something risky, but it's worth a, worth a risk. So, yeah, it was, um, it was, I think, just getting people convinced that we could do this. Yeah. Do you remember who your, um, your first big score was that you kind of went, holy mackerel, we're on here? Yeah, let me, gosh, let me think. Um, boy, I have the poster in the other room. I probably should go take a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we were very fortunate to get a lot of really good bands early on. Um, you know, like Boys of the Lock, of course, they're you know, a wonderful band. We had, uh, we did bring in the, you know, Makeham, Tommy Makeham, and we had folks like um, Greenfields of America, and we had Stockton's Wing. And we, I mean, we were able to attract some bands after we finally got started. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think it was also because it was a musician who was doing it. I think that mattered to a lot of, because we, made it a point to want to treat them well when they were at the festival. We wanted to make, have them understand how appreciated they were. They weren't just a, an act that we were throwing out there with, with all the other activities. It was something that we wanted to be a, a, a very much a music focused festival. Do you recall, something. do you recall a shift in the community, like a, an appetite growing for Irish music during this time? Yeah, yeah, it was. And as I said, I think, you know, things like River Dance and a few other things, Drury's uh, Irish Music Show, they came into Dallas and uh, they were very successful. And uh, so when we started doing what we did, uh, even though our emphasis was really on traditional music, that was our focus, um, we started seeing a lot more people coming out. And then it became a thing. I mean, it was always the first full weekend in March. So it was kind of a kickoff for all the St. Pat's you know, activities and um, and everybody would come and get their T-shirts and their stuff so they could have it for St. Patrick's Day. And, and then we started attracting a lot of people who love Irish music. Um, and I think that, that's, that was fun to see. It was like, hey, we've been, it been empty, been void of these great, great players and great musicians. And now they were coming to our state and people were just really grateful they could, could uh, hear this great music. And then, so what was the... What was, at what point did that kind of um, did that completely finish, or did you or you just left after you when you were um, once you finished being a director of it? Uh, well, you know, I I played I, my band. I, I played every one. My wife and I have played every every one of them. So we've been in music all this time and contributing music through the the time. But we got we got um, honestly we started raising a family. Uh, that that had to change and shift my whole thinking. Now I'm going to be a dad and. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a husband and, and it's important for me to kind of focus on getting a living uh, to be able to pay the way. So I shifted my attention from that. And, and I did pull away from the festival and pull away from the Southwest Celtic Music Association at that time 
um, knowing it was in good hands. I mean, we had built a good team. There was a really good volunteer group that was, uh, you know, making it their tradition every year. And so I felt comfortable at that time being able to pull uh, completely away and then focus on other things like the family. Yeah, <laughs> it takes a, it, there's only so much time to go around. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. you have to pick your, pick your passions. Yeah. So then when, how much time then am I thinking between, between that and the O'Flaherty retreat? Um, so during that time I was still involved. I mean, I was, I was, uh, working with, uh, various dance schools and trying to develop Kaylee's so people could dance to the music. And, um, you know, I was still, uh, I, I was still involved with, uh, SCMA with the Southwest Culture Music Association and also the festival in various ways. Um, but one of the things I didn't think that we did very well as part of our mission as part of Southwest Celtic Music Association was the educational part. So I started doing more, trying to get people involved in learning Irish music. Um, and that led me to a point where uh, we decided to do some kind of educational camp. And I had attended one up in uh, the Catskills uh, and just got a taste of it there and just saw how meaningful that was and still is meaningful for lots of folks um, but again in our area in our region the southwest region there was nothing i mean there was no camps uh, they had to go to swananoa or, <clears throat> or catskills or or i guess um, augusta and a few other ones that had or go to you know willie clancy week or something like that in ireland um, and i just felt that it was time for us being that we had developed this music community we had all these people interested in Irish music, um, many players, but many not that wanted to learn. And I was thinking, gosh, if I had just had, you know, a, a Frankie Gavin come down, or actually speaking of banjo, you know, if I could have a, um, you know, a Mick Maloney come down and teach, that would really have helped me at an early time of my learning how to play. So it became clear that this was something we could try to do. And, and so we risked it and it worked. That sounds like a perfect spot. If we could have another song or a tune and then we come back because there's a lot of questions around your approach to education and, and bringing people to the area. So would that be all right? Yeah, let's, uh, let's go ahead and do a song. Okay. Oh, brilliant. oh great. What, what, are you, what are you thinking of? Well, it's, it's called Welcome Poor Patty Home. Um, the short story of this is that uh, I learned this from Christy O'Leary of The Boys of the Lock. Um, and... This was the song that I sang my kids every night before they went to bed. Now, it has no meaning particularly for kids, <laughs> but I love the melody, so I would sing it to them, and um, it was just became part of a tradition every night that I would come in and sing the song to them. I am I'll never deny what I am. I was born in the sweet Tipperary town, three thousand miles away. Array me, boys, array. No more do I wish for to roam. The sun that will shine in the harvest time to welcome poor past. Now the girls, they're young and they're frisky 
They'll take you by the hand Say, Jimmy McCree, won't you come with me To welcome poor Paddy home Hooray, me boys, hooray No more do I wish for to roam The sun that will shine in the harvest time And it came the faraway stranger And settled all over our land The horse and the cow and the goat and the sow Fell into the stranger's hands Hooray, me boys, hooray No more do I wish for to roam The sun that will shine The Englishman can boast of the rose, but Paddy can boast of the Emerald Isle, where the dear shamrock grows. Hooray, me boys, hooray! No more do I wish for to roam. The sun that will shine in the harvest time to welcome poor Paddy. Hooray, me boys, hooray No more do I wish for to roam The sun that will shine in the harvest time To welcome poor Paddy home That was great. That's a little intimidating. I have to confess, I, I don't typically play solo on anything anymore. So mm -hmm. just playing into a mic by myself is, that's a little nerve wracking. It's fascinating how, uh, how much it, it changes. It, 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 I don't know if psychologically, uh, it changes everything. I find it really, really fascinating. The the self pressure is so high compared to playing in front of other people when you turn on a microphone. Yeah, definitely. I think is it because you internally you internally start judging yourself, whereas if you're playing in front of people, you're happy because you know they're doing the judging for you. Yeah. Well, the idea of playing with ensembles is if I make any mistakes, it gets covered up by the other guys. You know, that's great. Yeah. Well, it sounded great, Ken. All right, thanks. There's also, I mean, there is also something interesting about the fact that um, when you're playing and you're not recording. You know that it's it's ephemeral. It's just gone in the wind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas something kicks in when you know that it's that it's being recorded. It does for me yeah. anyway. Um, Ken, before we talk a bit about a bit more about um, education and the O'Flaherty um, retreat and so on, I wanted to ask you a bit more about just uh, your 
your background and and you you know your mom and dad and you know like where did you grow up? Well, my dad was in the army, so we we traveled every three years. So I I traveled in various parts of the U.S. and lived in Germany for three years. And um, they've always been big supporters of me playing music. My my dad played guitar, but only played three chords, and he would sing maybe three songs, and that was it. Um, so I grabbed his guitar from him and started playing, and um, that got me. Actually, the first instrument was a was a banjo uke. A banjo ukulele. I have it hanging on my wall. Um, that was my very first instrument. And um, but when he left the guitar and I just picked it up, started playing it. My mom played piano all by ear. Uh, so there's a lot of music in the home. She would do a lot of singing, a lot of hymns. Um, but we traveled, and um, so I I got the good fortune. I mean, a lot of people don't feel that way, but I think it was good fortune. Uh, I got exposed to a lot of different kinds of cultures and people, music, and um, I think that helped shape me. When I was in Germany, that's when I really started playing a lot of rock. Um, and I was, I was playing officers clubs when I was, you know, 15 years old, making more money than most kids do at that time. And um, so I was taking music very seriously at that part of my life. Um, and we had, uh, again, good fortune, our band over there, was called Unaccounted For. We won the Battle of Bands of Europe. So that kind of put me on a path that, um, hey, music is going to be my life. Um, but you can't really make a living um, if you're an American playing Irish music. I mean, some do. Don't get me wrong. There are some great bands that uh, are able to make a living doing it, but uh, it was just never meant to be for me. And um, music has just been a strong passion. I've been able to do my regular work and still do music, which is really it's great. Was it hard for you to come to that realization that it w- that it wasn't quite going to click that way? Um, I don't. I don't think my ambition was necessarily to be a professional musician playing Irish music. I don't think that was the case. Um, I, I kind of hoped that we would have taken it further than just being a Texas band. I, I had wanted to. I mean, we did play Milwaukee Irish Fest, as I said a couple times. We played Winfield Festival. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd hoped to do more of that, but then almost every member of the band, they were married and had families and, and they, they were trying to, you know, stay home. So it just was the luck of the draw. I just didn't have a, a willing group to be able to go much further than the borders of our town uh, for the most part. Yeah. And was, was the, I, I'm, st- I'm still kind of curious about the, the link to the Irish music, was there any of that in your background when you were growing up from from your parents or anything, or was it actually just randomly that once you heard it, you kind of thought, "This is this has got something that that sort of resonates with me musically in my soul in some way that other things maybe not so much." Do yeah, you know what I mean, no, it was it wasn't part of my my growing up except at the point when I came back from Germany, I was still playing rock and I tried to make a living. That the one year I was a professional musician was one of the worst years of my life. I mean, I was starved. I, you know, it was the drug, drug era. And it was just like, it was a terrible experience trying to make a living playing rock music. Uh, so I think that helped me start making a turn towards folk music, traditional music and all that. But when I, you know, I, I got to a place uh, in Colorado Springs, this is where I landed. Um, there was a friend of mine who would travel to Ireland every year. He was a teacher. 
and he would basically ride his bike all over Ireland every summer. He'd do that. And he would come back with these cassette tapes of these bands. And uh, we used to go traveling in his, we used to call it a hippie van. And it was a Volkswagen bus and we'd plug in the tape and we'd listen to Irish music. And that, that was kind of my first exposure. Um, and that's when I started finger picking Irish music. That was because I was a finger picking guitarist at that time. And so I just started doing more of that. So that was kind of my beginning. It wasn't the Dan and the Winfield. That was what really got me to, okay, I'm putting aside the five string banjo and picking up a four string. But I fell in love with the music and that was kind of mid seventies. Um, and you know, that's, that's when some, you know, these were the bands that were going to be the, the great bands like the Planksties and Bachy bands and the uh, Dan and all those that really just, um, really got me fired up. I just didn't know how to use it. You can't, you can't do a Dedanon set necessarily with finger picking guitar. You do a lot of Planksties and hornpipes and things like that. You don't get into a lot of reels and stuff. Now you do when you have people like John Doyle, they can play reels back and forth on guitar. But back then it was more finger picking style stuff and it didn't have the energy that uh, I eventually had when I picked up a tenor banjo. So, um, what were the factors that influenced you ending up in, in Dallas then? Because I'm, I'm interested also in the, the you know, D Dallas in, in my head, rightly or wrongly, I, I have an image of Dallas as being a very... Um, very Republican in the GOP uh, sense, in the American sense, of quite a, um, quite a traditional, very commercial city, oil city. Um, not so much your organic folk festivaly type of city. <laughs> no. Now that's I, I get I get I know that's a ridiculously broad brush, probably outdated view of it. But for the time that you were there, I mean, that's the that's the heart of. Um, of uh, Reagan Republicanism and and so on was it? Yeah, it was very. Was it a hospitable city for you, kind of culturally? Did it feel well? It, it, back then, it was very very conservative. Now Dallas has changed quite a bit. I mean, it's a it's a democratic city for the most part. It's the suburbs that are all the Republicans you talk about, but it's 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 politically it's changed quite a bit. But back in the eighties, yeah, it was it was a it wasn't the best environment for for folk music. I mean, there were folk pubs, like I said, the Port David's pub. There was also a, other folk groups that were uh, organizations that were helping, you know, the singer-songwriters and, and uh, you know, folk music. Uh, there just wasn't anything really Irish back then to speak of. There were a few bands, as I said, but they were not playing traditional music. They were doing the pub singing. Uh, so it was it was hard initially, but, you know, we this NFL bar, I bring that up each time because really that was the place that started it. And that that guy Nick Farley supported it, and um, that enabled it to grow. I mean, it was like planting a seed, and then with all the other things that I mean that started coming through the, the river dance and all that. I think that started to blossom, and then with the festival coming in, that helped it blossom even more. And and all of a sudden, you have this momentum going for you. Now, you, not only do you have people who are really liking the music, but you have people that are are playing the music. So you, now instead of just a couple pubs, we ended up with five or six pubs all playing Irish music. And then you have sessions and everything else. And so you're building this community, music community. Uh, and it was exciting. I mean, it was some of the best years of my life was uh, just, and we got to play the Kerrville Folk Festival, which is known primarily for, you know, folk music and singer songwriters and some of these great singer, 
these great writers of folk songs, and they're starting to bring in Irish music there. So it was it was a great time to see the growth happen. Do you, do you get a buzz out of the organizing part of it as well? Though obviously, I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah, that's that that's actually kind of what I do best. I mean, I don't consider myself a great musician by any stretch, um, but my contribution really is trying to help organize it. I I. I, it's, it's part of my DNA. I, I really do that. I do that in my business. I've done that pretty much all my life where I've tried to start stuff. What's your business? Um, so, uh, I have a team building company uh, called Group Dynamics. It's uh, I mean, we basically take groups and help them become uh, you know, performing teams, high performing teams or just connecting. That's what we do. Uh, so that that is. That has, that's, that's also part of the story. You know, as I, I, I I've had some of these skills and and now I'm doing a business that involves that. It's really a, a wonderful business. When you tell me about that, uh, Ken, I think we, we spoke about the festival and we spoke about times and there was a, a whole lot of things you tell me about from an educational perspective. And then when you mentioned that you built, you had a team building company, it, it all made complete sense. Uh, so to try and get everyone on that same page, if we go back a little bit and you were you'd finished with the festival and concentrating on family, and then when you were looking at the possibility, the the what's the when you were looking at the options of getting tutors in, was that around the time when you set when you set up the um, traditional Irish education society? Uh, yeah, well, that actually followed the, our first O'Flaherty Irish Music Retreat. Um, okay, I, I have a tendency to do this. I intend I have a tendency to do an event and then find an organization to do it. I mean, it's it's always been that way. It, it's probably not the best way to do things. Uh, you probably ought to start your organization first and then you do your event, but we did it the other way. And I think it was more a test drive. Does it, does it work? If it does, oh, let's get serious about it. Let's really continue to do a next one. So in that case, we did the, the retreat and that was in 2004, uh, the first O'Flaherty Irish Music Retreat. Could, was, you t- uh, could you take us through the steps? Because I think that's where we dropped, we, we dropped away before we had the last tune. You yeah. were thinking about the possibility of what would it be like, or what would it look like if I was to get some teachers in. What was the, what was your thinking in your process? Yeah, because I had gone to the the Catskills. I think it was in two thousand one, um, and I I just appreciated the value of that. Um, having not had somebody to really help me learn, uh, there were some struggles. I mean, if you're listening to something and you're hearing something, you're going, "How did they get that sound?" Or how did how did they pick that? You know, not having somebody in front of you that can help you learn it is it, it's just a struggle. So when I was at the Catskills, I was seeing this great response from people uh, to these wonderful instructors from Ireland and also in the states. I mean, a lot of great Irish players in the states. And I just said, uh, you know, we really need something like that back back in Texas and in the Southwest. So that spurred me on to think, okay, how can we make this work? Because you know, again, we've, we've got a lot of interest in the music, but how are we going to get all these teachers there? And how is that going to pay for itself? And where are you going to do it? And um, it's interesting how many doors began to open up as we started to, I mean, I just started thinking through where are we going to do it and who are we going to get? And um, yeah, so my organizational mind started to kick in, trying to do all the planning. And, uh, and again, I worked on the event. I didn't even think about the organization, the Traditional Irish Music Education Society. That was a, a thought after the event, uh, much like the festival was done first before we even considered having the Southwest Celtic Music Association. It was 
the event was what I was really focused on at first. So then with the oh Friday, the first one, the, the first retreat, how did that come together? And what was that? What, was that... Did you have a philosophy going in there and did did you uh were you happy with the outcome of that yeah i mean i i did i i, I had talked with uh seamus Connolly. i mean at the time he was doing um oh gosh what was his camp called it was he did it for about 10 years up in boston um gaelic roots i think it is yeah gaelic roots i think is what it was called um and seamus became our first uh guest instructor he was our only guest instructor. I mean, the rest of the instructors were performers or players in the area. Um, but I did that for a reason, because Seamus had been directing a, a, a teaching camp for 10 years. And, uh, and at that time, he was just giving it up because of all the problems with uh, you know, getting people over from Ireland, the visa issues and all the other stuff. Um, so I thought it was a real good timing on our part to invite him to be that. So he came in and taught, but then I spent time with him just asking every possible question, how, what, what should be my next steps going forward? And he was very helpful. I mean, he really provided a lot of good insight about what to do. So I, as, as a good team building person will do, you, 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 you pull a good team together. I have always been blessed by having a lot of good people around me that are, have, have the same passion. And when you have that, you know, when you put the vision before them and they have the passion, it's amazing the kinds of stuff that they can do. Um, and I, it, again, I surrounded myself with really good people that shared the passion, that had skill sets in a variety of different areas. And interestingly enough, those people are still with us. And, you know, it's now 16 years later, they're still doing what they started with. You know, it's that kind of group. And the O'Flaherty, sorry, I was going to say, who, who was Jim O'Flaherty that, that the retreat is named after? Yeah, Joe Flaherty was from Listowel. He was a pilot, I think, for Southwestern Airlines. And, you know, in the very beginning, uh, as we were networking, trying to find out who plays Irish music in our area, uh, I came across Jim O'Flaherty's name. And he, was, uh, he played Illin Pipes. He played whistle. He played flute. Uh, he had 10 kids. He taught them all how to play instruments. They were The big goal for them was to be a, a Cayley band. He loved to be in the he would love to be in the Cayley band competitions at the FLA in Ireland. And that was his goal. Uh, but he came, came, I mean, we made contact and we started doing uh, basically you call them potluck sessions. We'd all be invited out to his house. Uh, he lived in Corinth, Texas, which was not very far from, from Dallas. And we'd go there and I remember we, we started meeting all these people who play Irish music and these bands. And so we would we'd meet at Jim O'Flaherty's house and we'd play, you know, sessions for a number of hours and have food. Um, and it was just an amazing time. It was there where we traded tunes together, you know, we shared tunes. And uh, Jim would have a video of his, you know, his, his uh, family back in Ireland. And he would show uh, the Cayley bands marching down the streets. And I mean, hmm. it was a, he, he was teaching us about the culture that went with the music. I think that's, that's the other part that we... I think we pride ourselves with our, our camp, our retreat, is we don't let it just be about the music. We also want to know about the history. We want to know about the connection. You know, what do the songs mean? Where do they come from? You know, all those things are important to our, our retreat. And he was doing that in his own way. He was sharing with us his experiences as well as sharing the music. And, and from that, we said, hey, what a, what a great 
person who have contributed so greatly. And after he passed, uh, we just figured it'd be a great tribute to him to call it in his name. It's a lovely story. Just to give um, anyone who's not familiar with the O'Flaherty Retreat an idea of the kinds of things you cover, I notice in your 2020 program, you know, there's conversations about our regional fiddle styles disappearing, the Balkan influence in Irish music, the history of the tradition and where it's going. And so all sorts of different, um, it's like a 360 degree approach to the sport where the music lives, right? Right. Yeah. And these are being taught by the instructors who, you know, who have those experiences. And I think that's the other part that's always been wonderful. And that's why our students value those particular, uh, we call them enrichment classes. Uh, is to enrich is to enrich them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Aptly named, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the people that you get into your camp too over the last few years, I've been looking at, have been phenomenal as well. It is, it it, it would rival anything that would be happening in in Ireland in in terms of the caliber of players which come over, which come out to to teach at the uh, retreat as well. I'm sure that takes a an army worth of um, organizing and, and the, trying to get visas and the logistics behind that must be incredible. Yeah. Fortunately, my wife is the one who handles all the visas. She's done it a number of years now and she's got it down, but it has been challenging at times. I mean, sometimes it takes eight months to get a visa and sometimes it takes a month. Uh, it just depends on what's going on. You know, uh, we were surprised actually that we got our visas approved in short order because of the, the virus, you know, it's, it's shut down a lot of offices and stuff, but we were able to, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was back to that talking to you, having, trying to convince people that, Hey, you're bona fide, you're, you're a real thing. Uh, at the very beginning, it was hard to attract, uh, you know, great players and great teachers because again, you know, you're, you're coming from, Hey, we're just kind of in the beginning of this. Um, now we, we don't have the problem. We have enough, um, um, I guess, uh, exposure to uh, all the players in Ireland and elsewhere that uh, we were able to approach them where we couldn't before. Not, not that they were looking down on us or anything like that. That was not it at all. It's just that we we're kind of a different concept. I mean, most, most camps are a week long. We're only talking three days here for ours. And, um, you know, it's in Texas, you know, most people don't understand there could be Irish music there. And, so I don't know what they were thinking, a lot of them, that maybe it wasn't a good fit for them at the time. Uh, but as the years passed on, um, and particularly when you get advocates, uh, we, we really want to, when they come, we want that to be a good experience for them, not only for the students, but also for the instructors. So we go out of our way to make it comfortable for them and, and so they can come and really have a retreat, even though they're working it. Um, we, we try to set it up in such a way where they're really appreciated. Uh, and I think that helps. Yeah, nice. Um, do you think we could have a, a quick chat and then we'll just have some follow-up questions and, and and we'll have one to finish. Do you think that would be okay? You got enough time? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So I'm going to pick up the accordion. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm I, – I think I mentioned to Darren I've um, been having some physical issues over the recent years and I'm pulling away from banjo and moving more into accordion because it's easier for me to, to manage than the, the, the banjo. And interestingly enough, my daughter um, is now playing banjo. Uh-huh. So she's now the banjo player of the family and I'm picking up more of the accordion side of things. So it, it worked out. Uh, so I'll play a, I'm gonna play 
actually kind of three real quick tunes, uh, polkas. I mean, I, I love polkas. I love polkas on the box. And my one of my favorite box players is uh, Jackie Daly, um, who plays a C-sharp D box. And uh, so I, I take to most of the stuff that he plays. And this was uh, three tunes he played for, I guess, the 60th anniversary of, of uh, Cultus um, a number of years ago. Um, so it's called the Ghislaine and then Blackwater 1 and 2. Um, so I'll play that. I'll move my mic over. you guys know that it's uh, I think we reached 90 degrees I don't know if you guys do Celsius or whatever but right now it's sweaty and sticky inside this house <laughs> <laughs> and that's not what you want for a accordion play yeah th um, thank you for putting yourself through that that was great though so thank you. D can I ask just a bit of a, 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 a piece of advice question so can Dom Dom is a secret uh, well, it's becoming less of a secret. It's not a secret now. Yeah. It's not a secret now, but I reckon a uh, an accordion <laughs> might be on the cards anytime soon for for Dom. What advice would you have for him? Well, you got to make a choice between C sharp D tuning and a B C tuning. 
So that's the first step you got to do. And then the second thing is don't buy a, don't buy a cheap instrument just to start because it's hard to play unless you have a relatively playable instrument. So that would be what I would recommend. Right. Okay. Um, maybe you can, maybe you can, uh, we touch on and off about the difference between C sharp D and a BC um, in terms of playability for a starter. You know, I think C sharp D is much easier. Um, do you ever play harmonic at all? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Badly. So it's, it's yeah. Badly. <laughs> Well, you won't be much bad, much worse, I guess, on a Croydon. Uh, the, the, B, the BC, I think, is a much more versatile instrument. Um, but most Irish music, the keys you play in C sharp yeah. D is fine. It's it, it's much more. It makes more sense to me uh, when I when I was kind of looking at both systems. Um, the C sharp D just made better sense. It was something I could pick up much easier. And by the way, I I picked it up initially to be a utility player, not a, a box player. Yeah. And that's now changing because of my, you know, having to put the banjo aside. I think uh, now I'm becoming much more serious about the accordion. But back then I was just doing, I was learning certain tunes to play and it was easy to learn. That was the reason why. Um, if I had known that I was going to be a box player for the rest of my life, I don't know, maybe I would have changed. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're sitting down yourself just to have a bit of a play quietly when you've you need a lift or something. Is it the accordion you reach for or do you reach for the guitar or something else? It more and more becoming the box. I mean, I've, I've used to never take a box into a session. I always took a banjo. I mean, I've, I've, I've been playing banjo for so many years. I know so many tunes on banjo. I know, I, I know far less on box. And when you're at a session, that's kind of what you want to do is be able to play. Right. So I would always bring a banjo and that's always been my energy instrument. Um, but I don't play as well as I used to because some of the, you know, what I'm going through. So it's now all my focus and attention has moved to accordion and I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's almost like discovering a, a brand new instrument in many ways. And it, do you mind me asking, and if you're not comfortable speaking about this, that's fine, but um, what are the, the physical issues you're having with playing the banjo? Well, you know, about four or five years ago, I started having cramps in my hand and numbness and stuff. And so I finally started, I kept trying to do all kinds of things to, to to prevent that from happening, and it just wasn't working. So I finally went to a, a orthopedic surgeon and, and ended up doing an MRI. And so I have a what's called a, a degenerative disc disease. So in my, I guess it's C5 and C7, there's there's this disease, and it's radiating pain down through my shoulder and to my arm and to my hand, and numbness and things like that. So it's it's um, I went. Four months ago when I found this out, I went and started doing physical therapy for 16 weeks. And I thought I had kicked it. And um, and then this past couple of weeks, it started to flare up again. So I obviously haven't kicked it. So that's going to be the next challenge for me. Is it going to be surgery or is it going to be more physical therapy or whatever? But it's it's been the most discouraging experience, although the box I can play a little bit easier than I can on the, the banjo because the banjo has certain you know, things you have to do that require your hands and your fingers a certain way. And for some reason, the box is a little bit easier on me. I guess the box has less of a, less of a stretch, maybe? You know, I don't, I think it has everything to do with the tension. Uh, because when you're holding a pick and you're trying to do these triplets and these fast uh, tunes, uh, it puts a lot of tension on the hand and particularly the thumb area where you're holding the pick and all that. I think that's, I think that's part of the problem because this radiates kind of numbness. 
So I'm overcompensating because I'm not feeling the pick like I normally would feel it. So I think that's what causes some of the difficulties. Whereas the box, I mean, you're basically just hitting buttons and uh, yeah, there's stretching there as well, but it, it, for some reason it doesn't seem to have the effect that the other does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does it worry you, the, the, the idea that you may be moving away from the banjo? I didn't necessarily. Yeah, I was, I was very discouraged for a while um, because I, I, I know so much on the banjo and um, it was so much a part of my music. You know, I, I would, yeah, it was very discouraging when I started feeling these pain, and I and I started realizing that um, it's not going to get better. I mean, I'm not I'm not young now. I'm I'm reaching those later years in your life where your your body's going to do this. Um, so I, but I know there's lots of players that are much older than I am that are still enjoying the music, and I intend to be one of those. It may be a little painful in some ways, but I can't imagine giving it up no matter what. But that, that is one of the, the, I mean, I guess that's one of the signals that life sends you at times that you're getting older, you know, like the way you make a noise when you bend down to pick something up off the floor or oh, yeah, yeah. when you never used to, when, you know what I mean? Like there are these sort of signs that you get over time and suddenly you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I am, I'm not um, 27 anymore. Yeah. And I think that's another reason why I'm glad I didn't try to choose to make a living of this, this this is you know it's I mean most people don't realize uh, what it takes to play this music it's very strenuous music I mean I have a, a good friend who's a classical violinist and she plays in orchestras and she gets beat up really hard when she plays Irish fiddle I mean she really does uh, it's just a it's a challenging music but there's a lot of I mean stress that goes with it and so I'm always admiring, you know, great players like a Kevin Burke, who's been playing it for so long and still plays it so well. And, and other players I could mention that are just phenomenal. Uh, and it's not like they're going out doing yoga and, you know, all kinds of exercises. It's just that, you know, mm -hmm. whatever reason they're wired and built that way where they can last. But a lot of us, I mean, it's a, it's a struggle trying to keep your, uh, your form. So then you, your children also play then, right? Yeah, one of the greatest things about this music is them coming on board and playing. I mean, they've listened to it since... That must be brilliant. Oh, it's... it's I can't even begin <laughs> to tell you. And because they are they all live in this area, we get together every Thursday night and have dinner and session. And that's Aww. our tradition. And, <laughs> and we and we just formed uh, an ensemble called Ken Folk, not after K-E-N, but K-I-N Folk. Um, and we're going to start performing locally and, and I'm looking forward to that, but it, it's, uh, they've heard it since they were in the womb. I mean, really, they've, they've, we've dragged them around to all the festivals we played, all the gigs, well, not all the gigs, but a lot of the gigs that we, we can bring them to. And they've heard it all their life. And Peggy and I just never thought we should force that on them. So we let them go their own way. And so they got into some rock and folk and, and other kinds of music and they're all piano players and they, they do that really well. And then a few years ago, they both came to us saying, "Hey, we'd like to, we'd like to learn." And Katie wanted to learn banjo, and that just made me as proud as can be. And, and my son, he's playing uh, whistle and drum, and then now he's playing flute. So, and he's really passionate about it. So it's just a dream come true uh, that they are involved in in our lives that way because now all four of us are passionate together, which is just wonderful. So uh, you know, if that was the dyna if that was 
my kids and one of them had picked the instrument that I play, it would have been just a piece of sibling one-upmanship, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll play the one you played, Dad. <laughs> Because you're the best. Well, the great thing about this is she's she's actually my my daughter Katie is is probably gonna, in a very short order going to be playing circles around me, at my best. I mean, she's picking it. She's learning the right. Remember, I told you I kind of learned all the bad habits, and you know, even though I had people <laughs> saying, "Ken, you shouldn't be playing that way," I still play that way. Uh, but she's learning how to play it as if somebody's teaching her well. Because she's coming to these music camps, these O'Flaherty retreats, and she's you know she's getting learning from Cathal Hayden on banjo, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, this, this guy's brilliant. I mean, Indus Cahill or uh, Angelina Carberry. I mean, these are the great banjo players of all time. And, and she gets to be in the room with them and watch how they do it and see how they do it. And I mean, she has tremendous advantage because of that. And uh, so I, I need to say, I'm not the one teaching her. She's teaching herself, but also getting some great teaching from some of these teachers who come in. Before we wrap up, I'm, I, I just want to ask you about you know what is a what is a bad habit with a banjo? Well, yeah, what is? There's plenty of non-banjo players probably come in with an answer. Uh, I was going to say you're, you're opening up a really a lot of jokes here. Uh, yeah, I think the first thing we pick up the pick that's the first bad habit. Um, no, it, it has everything to do with uh, you know fingering style and picking style. For example, I use my pinky on the fifth fret. Most players use their use a mandolin. Um, fingering on the banjo which is actually the best way to do it in my opinion because it allows you to reach higher on on the e string things like that and then some of the the way i ornament i plant my finger on my on the head of the banjo that's not a yeah. good idea because it really limits you in terms of your being able to do certain uh, runs and everything so those things i've just never been able to change and i wish i had because in many respects it's limited me um, in terms of my ability to play certain tunes. Right. So it's, it's the technicality of being able to navigate your way around the notes. Yeah. It, and, it, and that sort of intersects with technique. Yeah. Because as you know, some Irish music gets played pretty fast and, uh, it's economy of movement and all that. And I didn't learn that had to, so I struggled when I was young, see, I could do it. I could just power through it. Uh, but as you get older, you just don't have that, uh, you know, ability to do it the way I play it. So it's just been a, a eye opener over time. Going, you know, I, I wish there was somebody there could have given me some advice at the very beginning, and and by the way, I, I've learned from that. So uh, I make it an open option. Anybody can come to me. I'll give them two hours of every instrument I know how to play. I won't teach them how I play, but I will give them started in a right direction, uh, because I think it's important to get that. When you think then about the amount of time that you have spent organizing events and organizing festivals and all that you've put into it. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you must have an amazing sense of pride because not only with your own children, but the, the fact that you have invested so much of the time of your life to furthering the music and making it, helping people make it available to more players, right? Yeah, it is. It's gratifying. And I, I see that, you know, one thing we didn't mention, we have a youth camp, too. And, and to see young players, they are so hungry. And if you give them just a morsel, it's amazing what they're able to do when you're young. I mean, they're like sponges. And to see them grow into these incredible musicians, that's just a real, that's just wonderful. Um, and But it's, it's very generous, though. Like, it's it's generous of you to 
to invest that time. Do you know what I mean? Like you could have spent all that time just doing your own thing and following your own path, but you, you I don't know. I just think it's pretty amazing. So good on you. Yeah, thanks. I, As I said, it's gratifying just because the, the results are, you know, I can go into a pub and play music almost anywhere in our area because that's now part of the tradition here. I mean, I'm really setting it up really well for me as in my old age. I can I can go to a pub and play <laughs> tunes. I mean, uh, I know a lot of communities don't have that or they don't have a place they can go to learn music or be around other musicians. I mean, I was saying this to Darren. I mean, I really want to make this point. The reason I love Irish music so much is such a social music. I mean, I can't think of many other music where you can sit down with the greatest players in the world and have a tune with them and you and feel welcomed. I mean... There's this amazing psychology to this music that I just don't understand is that most people are so welcoming. They're so interested in helping you. Uh, you can't get, but you, you, you can't help yourself. You're connected to this great network, this great club, and it's worldwide. You can go into almost any town that has a pub and you'd be able to find an Irish musician to play music with. Complete strangers, you don't even speak in their language. And you sit down and you become connected and you become a friend. It's just amazing the music does that. And I think that's what's been kind of uh, inspiring me all along is that you know, this is kind of, you, you need to be an evangelist about this kind of music. And this is, this is kind of the cure for loneliness. It's the cure of people, you know, just anti this, anti that, not getting along. I mean, at a retreat, you have all ages, you have all politics, you have all religions, you have all colors. I mean, it, it's just one big melting pot when you start playing Irish music. And uh, I love that. You know, I, I don't want to be sort of trite in the comparison, but, you know, when you're saying that, from my experience of living in the States, that really um, resonates with the best of my experience of living in the States. There is something, it resonates with the best of the idea I have in my head about a bit America with the United States, you know. It's still there. I mean, a lot of people question it, you know, based upon maybe an office or anything like that. But yeah, there, if you get if you get into the communities, um, it's it's there. You know, people looking after each yeah. other and caring for each other. Um, but it, the music is, I mean, it's such an easy entry point. Uh, if you think about it, I mean, that's that's just uh, if if you can feel welcome to feel part of something, even though you're not a great player, you may be a beginner or whatever. I mean, that's just encouraging. And I think that's why the music community is strong here is because we've had those kinds of relationships over time, you know, encouraging each other. And it's, it's amazing to watch the retreat. I mean, we have a lot of people who are starting the instruments when they're 75 years old. They're still filling their life with something that, you know, they have a passion for. And that's wonderful, too. And then you look at the kid who's six years old and is picking up an accordion and it's just really taking off. And, and you just know that that's going to be a... a a wonderful experience he'll be able to take through his entire life with yeah well ken thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us yes thank you so so much and for the goosebumps you just delivered in that last little bit and it was so nice to hear yeah well i appreciate what you guys are doing i mean i i came across you obviously you know darren had reached out i think about the possibility of coming out our way and uh man you guys are doing a great job too anything you're doing to help promote the music and and uh, get people interested i think it's a good thing so my hat's off to you well thanks oh thanks ken we've been we've been very lucky because the um as you've just said you know the, the the players are willing to share so 
I don't think there's any other genre of music that would allow you and I, Dom, to uh, to front up and have a chat. And Ken, like yourself, within one or two emails, you're just like, absolutely, like let's have a chat. And that generosity and and open open armed approach to the to beginners to well, like I'm still very much a beginner in the in the whole thing, and I get. Brought, I get as much attention as anyone else, and that consistently blows me away. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great music to be in. Thanks. Do you think we could have one last tune to finish? I'm trying to think what it would be. Awesome. Uh, uh, let me let me see if I can try something on the banjo. I mean, I I always fall back to that, and we'll see what happens. So that's Ken Fleming, and yeah, yeah I um, really hope I really hope uh, whatever happens this year, it doesn't doesn't affect the, the the retreat that much. I'm sure Ken, if it's an online one or if it's uh, something that hap- that actually happens in in the physical world, I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens the year the years down the road. I think I don't know, maybe it's just Ken because he's such a nice fellow, but it's one of the ones that I've got on my radar. I think one of my goals is. Go to the well, we've retreat. been we've been talking about this for about six months, thinking before everything unfolded with COVID nineteen that we were hopefully going to manage one of us to to go over there. And I was obviously thinking that obviously I'd be the natural one to go since you know you're the most handsome. I know I know how to drive oh. on the other side of the road. <laughs> I would have uh, a driver. So obviously that got quite. I should be the one who goes. Yeah. You know. So anyway. Um, Obviously, we're not going to manage that this year, but um, hopefully the O'Flaherty retreat will continue. And um, yeah, if you want to find out any more about that, you can uh, get the details from our show notes 
as usual. And yeah, uh, anyone who doesn't know what show notes is, uh, the, oh, by the, the way. stuff, uh, the stuff underneath the episodes, you click on the episode, you'll see the notes. There'll be a, a little uh, description of the show. And then there's a, a bit of stuff from me. Yeah. And and right down the bottom, all the way down the bottom, there'll be a few links in there. One of them will be the Patreon link because I just thought I'd remind you before we get out of here that the Patreon link is always in there. Patreon.com forward slash Baloney Pilgrims. So if you enjoyed that episode, you're like, geez, I can't wait for next week's one. Maybe uh, this could be the week you, you take the plunge. Aye, aye. All right. And yeah. We'll Thanks, Ken. Next week. Thanks again, Ken Fleming. Catch ya. I'm going to eat um, an apple. Please get, give Dominic and Darwin five stars. <laughs>